Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio, where we learn why visual information sharing is so important and what happens when it's not in place. Hello. Hello, my name is Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show, where we talk about and celebrate workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Thank you for taking time in your busy day to tune in. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, how visuality allows you to embed the intelligence of your operational system into the landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems, your intelligence, how to install the details of your current level of enterprise excellence, even if you're not quite as excellent as you wish you would be or as you know you will be whether you work in a factory, hospital, office, or open pit mine. And why do we do that? We do it for the stunning bottom line results, improvement in safety, tangible, measurable improvement in safety, quality, cost, productivity, on-time delivery. We do it for the splendid cultural alignment, to work with a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels. And we do it so we enjoy ourselves at work. We can flow with visuality in place. We pull information to us when and as we need it. We share it with others silently through our senses, through our eyes. Work flows. We enjoy ourselves at work. We become heroes at work. Oh, wonderful. So welcome. Welcome. Today we're going to return to doorway one. I think this will be the last show for a while, but then we'll pick it up, put some ribbons on it around this first level of our discussion of that very important doorway, doorway number one, tie it with a bow for the moment. In earlier shows, I walked us through the other nine doorways, the 10 doorway model. Remember, it's what the company does to cultivate a workforce of visual thinkers. Each doorway represents a different category of visual thinking or visual function, visual standards, metrics, visual pull systems, 5S, the visual wear, pokey oak, visual machine, those kinds of things. They're called functions of uh, categories of visual function. Production control boards is another one. The visual office is another one. Each doorway is tied to one of these categories of visual function, and each doorway is owned by a specific organizational level, supervisors, engineers, value-add associates, executives, or some combination. There are some repeats, of course, but basically visuality and the functionality of visuality spans the entire organizational chart. It's everyone. A match is made. Category of visual function with an organizational level, and that level speaks through visual devices. Remember? So, the 10-doorway model is a kind of roadmap. It's a great assessment tool. It's a great planning tool. It is also a predictive tool. You know that when you implement this model, 
you will have a workplace that speaks across the organization enterprise-wise. When the 10 functional categories or the 10 doorways are robustly opened and in place, the enterprise can be called a well-functioning visual workplace, which I define like this. This is also a repeat of some things I've said in earlier shows, but I want to anchor this. It's an important discussion. What is a visual workplace? A visual workplace is a work environment, whether or not it's the whole company you're talking about as the environment, a department, or even a bench that is self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving. On the higher levels, you get a built-in PDCA loop. It is self-improving, where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night, because of visual devices. That is a foundational definition, and it's one we use throughout. I dreamt about it configured it, constructed it over 30 years ago, and it has never failed to stand up as the central definition of what we're after. So we're walking through doorway one in creating a workforce of visual thinkers, and we're looking at value-add associates. In this show, I want to kind of put a temporary bow on it so we can complete the scan of the other, the remaining nine doorways. But you can be sure we will return to doorway one again and again. It is that important, that rich, with knowledge and know-how and impact. We are, after all, on the value-add level where work happens. And there's a lot going on there. And splendid visual methods for grooming and surfacing individual performance and functional performance. Fantastic. So... The name of today's show, I have named it S1, What's the Big Deal Anyway? (laughs) So we're going to double down on S1, the first of the five S's. Doorway one is about the visual wear. That is a more, for me, descriptive term than the five S that is normally described to put lines and labels in place. I call it the visual wear. I also later on call it work that makes sense. But what's the big deal? And we're looking at the very first step of that process. In the five S's, it's called S1, get rid of the junk. What's hard about getting rid of junk? I got a big black plastic bag, pour everything into it, take it out to the trash, it's gone, junk. (laughs) And why do so many companies fail at 5S? Well, I tell you, they fail at S1. That's the place where it divides into you're on the road to success or you're going to go down the, down the tubes. Why are so many value-add associates disappointed in 5S and when so many corporate types are all excited about it? All these well-intentioned corporate initiatives, they go off the rails. What's hard about S1, for heaven's sakes? Well, I want to talk to you about that in this show, about what I discovered was the real meaning of S1 and why so much is at stake when so-called junk is removed in the, na- in, in the name of cleanliness and order. Hmm? Instead, S1 can be a stepping stone to an empowered work culture 
and a new kind of improvement leadership. It's really that important. But companies rush into it thinking they understand and they miss the golden opportunity to use S1, get rid of the junk, to reframe and reinvent the enterprise. Who would have thunk? So that's what we're going to walk through today. I'm going to give you my take on it. If we have time, we will also hear the story, one of my favorite stories to tell, called Charlie and His Table. If we don't, we'll pick that up another time. But more than likely, next week, we will, be go- we will begin with Doorway 2 Visual Standards, owned by engineer supervisors and managers. So let's begin with our program for today, kind of jumping in a little bit obliquely, as you've probably discovered. I get complaints about, I don't get to the point. Well, you know what? I like the I like the journey <laughs> almost as much as the destination. So every now and again, I get oblique. I take some detours. I hope you get used to it. You may not like it, but I hope you get used to it and uh, you get some benefit out of all the, the parts where we do touch the things that you're really interested in. So I want to say this. We're visual beings. Therefore, we live in a visual world and not the other way around. Visuality is a natural condition of our community, of our roads and highways, of the complexity of human beings going somewhere and getting there safely and on time. Our world is visual because we are visual beings. 50% of our brain function is dedicated to finding and interpreting visual information. This is an involuntary process. When someone said we only use 10% of our brain, that means the 10% we can have access to. But the responses to a visual environment is built in, hardwired into our brain function. It's involuntary. And if it isn't there, if there isn't any visuality to find or interpret, it creates a problem inside the human being, inside of our brain. It creates a lot of noise, a lot of stress, and too many questions. It creates fear. That's one way to summarize it. It creates fear. So, doorway one. Doorway one is about the visual where Operators, associates on the value-add level are responsible for putting that in place. This may be new language to you. I've spent over 30 years of my life looking at 5S, doing other things as well. And I suddenly, I really, one day I said, you know, 5S is not about these steps. It's about the outcome. And the outcome is to implant the visual wear vividly, firmly, reliably in the workplace. So that question never has to be asked again. It is answered to the satisfaction of the people who work in that wear. The absence of the visual wear triggers is an information deficit, and that triggers motion. Motion is the symptom. Motion is the struggle. Motion moving with, without working is what happens when the visual wear is not firmly, clearly, reliably in place. We wander, we wonder, we ask tons and tons of questions, or we don't do anything, 
We just get pent up. It's a big problem. So in doorway number one, we're putting the visual wear in place. And I don't call it putting down labels and lines. For me, a line is an arithmetic uh, construct connecting point A with point B. It has no function. It doesn't even exist. If you talk to mathematicians, they'll talk to you about how lines don't really exist. Well, we want something to exist. In fact, we want it to exist visibly so we can function for us who have eyes to see and who need the boundary function. We call them borders. We call our lines borders. And we don't call, we don't use the word labels. We use the word addresses. We use the word label in conjunction with an idea or an identification label. And we say we put the visual wear in place through these three elements, border, address, and if possible, an ID label. And here's the kicker for everything that casts a shadow, for everything that casts a shadow. The only thing we don't put an ID label on is consumables like M&Ms or cardboard boxes or every screw. We're consuming them. They're casting a shadow, but quickly they're being, be, they become part of a bigger shadow, subassembly or, or whatever, chipmunk box or whatever. Okay, so that's our formula. And this formula begins way, way, way back when with getting rid of the junk. So what's the big deal about it? Well, let me show you my hand about S1. S1 has been, for me, the stepping stone to an empowered work culture and a new kind of improvement leadership. For me, there is nothing more critical about starting the visual wear or 5S process than to get this one right. If you get it wrong, you really blow the whole journey on the value-add level, and that has repercussions over an extended period of time. (laughs) If you irritate things by handling S1 wrong, and I'll describe wrong in a few moments, and follow up with audits, well, you're just going to make things worse. (laughs) So... What is the golden opportunity that is in S1? And I want to make one other disclaimer before I begin. I failed, I confess this a few shows back, I failed at traditional the traditional approach to 5S. It is because I failed that I sought a new way. I failed at 5S as it came over from the Japanese which was seeming getting rid of the junk, no holds bar, open, no holds barred, open the big plastic, black plastic bag and fill it. That was the understanding that came over about the way the Japanese did their 5S. But we have to also remember that we were beginning 20 or 30 years ago and sometimes in companies now you haven't begun yet, to get rid of an incredible level of everything, junk and good stuff all mixed up together, this kind of chaotic pile of crapola, 
I didn't say the word. I said crapola. That was my mother's word for something uh, that she wouldn't allow me to say um, uh, more clearly. <laughs> crapola. Gwendolyn. Gingerbread. That's a lot of crapola. She didn't consider that cursing. I hope you don't either. So I, I couldn't get the traditional 5S to work when I undertook it in the 1980s. It would repeatedly not go anywhere. I had to push it. And when I trained others, I had to train them to push it. It didn't roll over by itself. And that's one of the critical conditions that you want whenever you implement an improvement initiative. It needs to have its own embedded pull. If it has to be pushed, there's something wrong. So I pushed and I pushed, I fussed and I fumed, and I found a few clients who wanted to fuss and fume with me. So we realized first, that the translation of 5S in the Japanese was very, very poor translation, nonsensical, really. We went over that last week and the week before. And I began to look at what is the meaning of this? What is the purpose of 5S? And if I could really understand that, then I could back up into the junk part. What do you do with the junk So I made a definition of 5S decades ago that worked for me. And it is like this, and it was was really carefully crafted. The purpose of 5S, I wrote, I remember the day I was in a little room. I just moved, uh, left Productivity Inc., which was the premier source for all information coming from Japan, and they were very successful, we had engaged the Shingo-Jitsu group. Shingo was my mentor. Ryuji Fukuda, Harada, Hirano, Nagajima, all the greats. I left the company because I couldn't get 5S right. And I told Norman Bodek, who was the owner, I said, I can't get this right. you got to give me time. He said, it's right enough. I think I told you this. Gwenny, you're making me millions. Keep going. No, no, it doesn't roll over. No, it's not fair to our clients. I was close enough to know that I was right. He was far enough away for him to believe I was wrong. I was just being fussy. So I left, started my own little company, called Quality Methods. I remember I was in a room with a sofa bed, and when I opened the sofa bed, I had to walk across the bed to get to my desk. It was just a tiny room. It was kind of a transitional place. I stayed for six or eight months. And I wanted to call my new company something. And I said, ah, oh, Quality Methods, that's what we're about. And I thought, no, you know what? I need something bigger. It doesn't match my dreams. I have this vision of how wonderful, what a wonderful contribution this will be. So I added international to the end of it. Quality Methods International, just the way Watson did to, uh, what was he called? He called them international, no, he called it business machines. No, he said international business machines, IBM. He said, no, it's big enough. Anyway, that company, Quality Methods International, morphed about 10 years ago or so to Visual Thinking, which is also a very big name, Change the world name. Well, way back when, when I began to do my 
my things my own way in my little attic room. The first thing I did was to change how the five S's were translated. Why not? It didn't work the way it was. I was on the inside track. I had seen how the translation came about, about me and my colleague, uh, Connie Dyer. We came up with these words. Hurry up, I need five words to begin with S in English. Let's say something like. <laughs> I was a Latin teacher. She was an attorney. I was there. I thought, okay, I'm going to do my own words. They make sense to me. First thing I'm going to do is define what is the purpose of 5S. And here's what I wrote two or three decades ago, two decades ago. The purpose of 5S is to prepare the physical environment to hold visual information and then to put visual location information in place to install the visual answer to the where question for everything that casts a shadow, to install the visual where. The purpose of 5S is to prepare the physical environment to hold visual information and then put visual location information in place to install the visual answer to the where question for everything that casts a shadow, border, address, and if possible, an ID label. There's nothing in that definition that focused on neat or clean as an outcome or getting rid of the junk as an outcome. This was all preparatory. It relieved me of making too much of S1. Sort through, sort out, get rid of the clutter, get rid of the junk. It forced me to look at it in a new way. And I took departures. In S2, I made it about prevention. And in the other S's as well. Make no mistake, I'm not asking you to change the five S as you're doing them now. I'm not. I'm just hopefully adding a perspective that might be interesting to you. Because for me, it revitalized the focus the process, and the results. Hmm? So S1, we have to do it. We have to get rid of the junk. But can we do it in such a way that it strengthens our overall corporate intent, that we do not marginalize it and say, just get rid of it? Can we actually harness it so that it strengthens excellence? Instead of, as I've seen it happen so many times, killing it off on the operator level, that highly sensitized, highly overlooked in many companies level of operator work, where so many 5S efforts have come to die, (laughs) to die. Can we get more juice out of it? What's alive in it? What's interesting? What's vital? Not, you know, not saying people hate 5S, people hate S1, or let's drive our results through audits, let's push it into place. Good test for your audits is if you stop your audits, does your 5S stop? 
or if you stopped your audits, would people clamor for them? Would they say, oh, we want more. Let's do it again. If you stop your audit, what happens? Hmm? What we're looking for is 5S that produces cultural alignment, cultural engagement, and not just cookie-cutter lines and labels. We're looking for the intelligence of S1. How the heck are you going to get a 15 to 30% increase in productivity out of your 5, 5S if it doesn't have juice? It needs to have juice. It's a little tricky. But I'm going to describe to you, I'm going to give you some kind of guidelines that we use to use S1 as a real culture builder, harnessing the opportunity, that simple act of getting rid of the junk. We do it in a way that we have found it to be successful, sort of like um, that Chinese proverb, the first step of the journey is the destination. And how to make that first step glow, be beautiful, be moving and engaging and strengthening. Well, here are three things, three premises that are important for S1. The first is not everybody sees what you see as junk. You may think it's junk, whether the you here is manager, CEO, CI specialist, OPEX leader, or colleague. Not everyone sees what you see as junk. That's plain and simple. We'll unnest that a little bit more in a moment. Second, when we touch or even talk about the things in the department, in the work area, in the workplace, we automatically enter into the world of territorial imperatives. Even though in most companies, operators, value-add associates don't own the things of work, the tools, the benches, chairs, pencils, desks, consumables, even though they don't literally own it, it feels like it's there. It feels like it's mine. This is my machine. This is my bench. These are my tools. If only for eight hours a day. Someone else comes in, in 15 minutes it's theirs, but right now it's mine by gum. I've worked here for the past seven or 17 years, and this sure feels like mine. It feels like mine. That's the red flag. That's the cultural signal. If it feels like it's mine, that's as good as saying it is mine. The translation, don't touch. It's mine. (laughs) We're human beings, and as human beings, we have complex emotional mechanisms. We interpret We perceive, we find meaning, we attach ourselves. We have a complex emotional relationship with the things that we touch every day at work, they feel like mine. So when the traditional 5S rule book says get rid of the junk, please tread carefully. 
Not everyone may agree with your definition of junk and vice versa. In some areas where there's single shift operation, a person has pretty much control. That's more easily done. But common areas or shared because of shifts, three shifts, four shifts, five shifts, multi-shifts, it becomes tricky. Tagging, red tagging, can become even more of an issue in a multi-shift setting where workplace items and the physical layout are owned and used by people you rarely see if you were an operator or even a manager. Cellular manufacturing and multi-skilled workforce then supports yet another spin on the ownership issue. All the items in the area are not only shared, but they're held in common. How are you going to handle that? Hmm? How do you handle that? Do you handle it by edict, by saying, get rid of the junk? You, 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 that, that, that. And you make it happen? You as the manager or the supervisor? Because it is a complex human issue. This is one way to spoil the cultural journey and do it out of the best of intentions. So don't win that battle because you'll lose the war. Don't make a test case out of the very first step of a long journey, an important journey, the first step in 5S. Don't win a minor point and lose the future. Pick the battles wisely. S1 should not be a battle. Here are three immutable rules. I love things that are immutable. They are unchanging rules, universal rules about S1. They're S1 principles. First, except for personal items and in some companies' personal tools, everything on the company premise belongs to the company. It's an asset. And as an asset, it cannot be thrown out. It doesn't belong to you, can't throw it out. So I just flipped it. You can't get rid of the junk because that junk belongs to the company. And if you take that as a premise, you will be much more thoughtful about removing it. The way we do this is we, re- we say, remove it from your value field, but don't throw it out. Get it out of your way. But you may not, and this is hard and fast, when we do implementations and we kind of set the rules and we get agreements with the company about our approach. But do not throw it out. It's a company asset. That's what the red tag corner is for. You put it on a red pallet or in a red trash can, a red area, paint it red. You put it there, you don't throw it out. That's the first immutable rule. You can paint a palette or a bucket yellow for items you're not quite sure about. You know how that works. Give me a moment on that. The second immutable rule goes hand in hand with the first. Don't throw anything out, except maybe dirty Kleenex and empty Pepsi cans, but we hope you recycle them. Everything else is not yours. It's a company asset. You may not know enough to know if the company does or does not need it or may need it. That's what your supervisors are for. Maybe there are obsolete parts, but they're not trash. 
Okay, so you don't throw it out. You don't know. You put it in the red tag corner. And then what happens? Well, our protocol is your supervisor then reviews it and decides whether he or she needs it or not. She may retrieve it, find a home for it, because she she knows in two months this product is coming back, for example. This works equally well for hospitals and offices. I'm using the easy terrain of the factory floor to talk about these things. But if the supervisor doesn't want it or need it, he or she cannot throw it out either. Nope. It gets moved to a central red tag area. And then once a month or once a quarter, the plant manager, the controller, the VP of ops will visit that red tag corner and make a disposition. So you never throw anything out. You simply remove it from your value field. We discussed value field when we were talking about the eight building blocks where you add value, the exact point. And you can consider that your department widely, your value field, in contrast to other areas. The third immutable is the majority doesn't rule. Don't use red tagging to vote. Don't let the majority rule, not if you want to capitalize on the powerful cultural opportunity 5S provides to not only prepare to introduce important visual improvements, but also to create and align an empowered workforce. Because when you vote, you become powerful at someone else's expense, and it is noticed. The power in empowerment is in its even distribution the release of the power that has been hidden or controlled by another organizational function. But when you release that power, it is not divvied up. It is simply released and all benefit. It's like air. We're running out of air in this room. We're running out of power. When you bring air in, oxygen in, everybody breathes it. No one gets more. No one gets less. So let's say there's seven of us working in our department and we're in the process of red tagging shared items. Six out of the seven tags on an item is red and red means junk, get rid of it. Green means, I'm assuming you you use the three colors. Green means keep it, I need it. And yellow means, I don't know, I'm not sure, maybe, I don't know. So six out of the seven tags are red. One is green. You know what? The item becomes green. Six are red. One is green. That means it stays. If six out of the seven tags are red and one is yellow, that means we're going to put it in temporary until we get clear on whether it is red or green. But it doesn't mean the majority rules. It's as simple as that. But the impact on the values, the human, the philosophical, the psychic values that are expressed in that kind of understanding, the impact is powerful and long-lasting. Diplomacy and resourcefulness can often ease the way in these situations. For example, an assembly associate was practically surrounded by mountains of parts. This came back from years ago. This was the work of, 
I think it was Bruce Hamilton at United Electric, my old friend. When it came time for S1, let's just say Bruce, Bruce didn't want to get rid of the mountain of parts that were eating up this assembly bench because the guy said, the assembly associate said, hey, look, I might need them. Okay, okay. It must have been Harvey, not Bruce. Bruce was a senior manager. Harvey was a supervisor. Okay, his name is now Harvey. I might need them. And Harvey said, yeah, okay, okay. Don't worry about it. And decided not to push the issue. Instead, he said, hey, would you do me a favor? Every time you touch this mountain of parts and take apart, would you just take one of these green dots and put it on this piece of uh, cardstock? Just every time you touch it. Well, every, any, any time you take a, point, uh, a part out of this mountain of parts <laughs> under his breath, just put a little green dot here. And the operator said, sure, I'll do that. And at the end of the week, Harvey came by. And he said, hey, how is it going? There were no green dots on this cardstock. Uh, card and Harvey thought, oh, gee, it didn't work. But the guy, this, the operator said, turned around and he said, he said, you know what? Can you get rid of all these parts that are really in my way? He never put the green dot down, but he, f- he knew that he never reached for one during the course of a single week. Harvey got lucky. It was a brilliant idea. He did it obliquely. He did it in such a way that the guy would realize or not realize without being pushed. Now, when you talk about respect, that's a demonstration of it. That's saying The power in you is the same as the power in me. And if I, as your supervisor, am not careful, you will take that power away and you will keep it in a box instead of contributing it. What's it called? I'll just use the word sharing. That's not exactly the word I'm looking for. Instead of sharing it with the company. The shorthand name for that power is called will. If I mess with your will and I try to get you to do my will, you know what's going to happen? You're going to appear to obey me, but you're going to take your will and put it in a lockbox, and it will never help the company because you're in control of your will. I'm not. It's a big realization. You may get the body, but you don't get the heart. And Harvey knew this. This is an extraordinary organization in the 1980s. Dave Reese owned the company United Electric. Bruce Hamilton was the visionary thought leader of this humongous change. And Harvey, Paul Plant, John Pacheco, Luis Cantata, Rita, these are all people who were going on that ride and learning so much and doing it right. It's fantastic. So are you willing to consider that S1, in fact, all the S's, might be more than you think, might be different than you think, that, that they may be actual tools or protocols or access routes to demonstrate your respect for the individual and still accomplish your goals, still move ahead, but move ahead with that small pause, 
it takes guts in some companies. In other companies, it will simply be a, a kind of a, a fresh idea or something that you can try out, you can experiment with. How to demonstrate respect when you're surrounded by junk and that the only way the junk is going to be differentiated from the good stuff is by adopting a process that is wholly human and respectful. It's not that you're giving up. It's not that you're abdicating. It's that you're allowing this power that is within to enroll in the corporate intent. Don't turn S1 into a battleground. I want so much to tell you about uh, Charlie. Let's see if I can get started. If I don't, it means the next show has to be about Charlie as well. Mm. Um, I'm going to give it a try. So S1 has a powerful purpose to build employee engagement and improvement. Visual order, the visual wear is not complex. It's not difficult. The tasks are low cost with huge tangible results. So I was working in a large aerospace plant in the New England area. It was Hamilton Standard. And we were in the ninth month of a implementation of the visual wear. I called it at the time 5S plus 1 visual order. And the floor was beginning to look fantastic. The clutter was gone. The machinery shone. The addresses and the labels and the borders were in place. The teams were excited. Operational teams owned their workspace. And then on Thursday, the announcement, the announcement came. The executive VP in charge of, of that plant said, we're going to close the plant down. Unless you can give us, get us, $3 million contract in the next, I believe it was six months, we're going to close the plant down. It wasn't announced to the loudspeaker. But the plant manager, Clark Shea, told me. He said, Gwenny, we're in trouble. We got six months. We got to make money out of this plant. It looks good. We were right in the center in what's called the props the props department. They were making propellers when propellers were such a thing. Oh, my God. Anyway, this, the plant worried. And then about two months later, a colonel came through. A colonel came through and was walking through the prop center because he knew that that was the best-looking place uh, on the campus. And he stood in front of a Mandeli machine. And outside the Mandeli, one of the guys had put up what the part looked like before it went into it. It's a big machining, final machining machine. What the part looked like before it went into the Mandeli and what it looked like after. It was just standing there. And the colonel said he was talking to Sam. His last name will come to me in a moment. He was a West Point graduate. I'm sorry, Sam. Your last name has drifted away. It'll come back. He was talking to Sam, and he, was, and he said he was leaning on this sign. It was just a little stand-up sign 
about three and a half feet, four feet tall, leaning on it with his elbow. He said, you know what? I'm going to three of your competitors. They have the same process. They have the same quality. They have the same uh, commitments. They have the same cost. But I'm going to give this contract to you. It was for $3.5 million. You know why? He said, because of this little thing here. And he pointed to this visual device, this sign. He said, I feel smarter in your plant. I feel smarter here. I'm going to give you this contract. I feel smarter. Wow. I got a call from Clark. And he said, Gwenny, you've been worth every bit of this. We just got, we just got a contract. We just got a contract for 3.5. The plant is not going to be closed. <laughs> Visuality saves the day. I was very happy. And, <laughs> and then that was, that was like on a Monday or whatever. I heard about the, this next part. I heard about this whole next part because I haven't gotten to the part of Charlie yet. So on Thursday, that was a Wednesday, that's right. On Thursday came the announcement that an executive VP in charge of corporate marketing was going to come out. This is United Technologies, UTC, Hamilton Standards owned by UTC. VP at UT. UTC was going to come out on the following Tuesday. He wanted a tour of the area. He wanted an explanation of how this happened because suddenly this plant that they were getting ready to close and making all kinds of, you know, plans to get some money out of the plant, they had to make good on their promise to keep it opened. And the VP wanted to know why. (laughs) So what happened is that Clark got an a hold of Sam, darn it, his last name is still gone from my mind, and said to Sam, hey, Sam, get ready for this presentation. I want you to make a presentation. And Sam said, I'd like the steering team to do it, which is a group of core shop floor associates who are ace visual thinkers. And they said, sir, we will take it over. We'll make you a fine presentation. They met on on. On Thursday, they met on Thursday, they made their plans, they decided they were going to make a before and after video so the VP could see the methodology at work, step by step. But there was a problem. In the props area, there were no more before areas. There were none. The whole place looked terrific, terrific. A++ except for Charlie's Corner. Charlie. Charlie was a loner. He was one of the grumpiest guys in the company. He didn't seem to like anyone. He kept to himself, and he did great work. He did great work. His area was an eyesore in comparison to the rest of the prop center. Had this rickety old table that fit somehow between the coiler and the gauge stand. It looked like it was they were made for each other. But we had let Charlie alone. Because during the training, during the conversion, it was very clear to us that this was a hands-off situation. That we would have to break Charlie to get him to align with the program. And his work was outstanding. It's just that he was grumpy. Not somebody you want to hang out with. And he made that very clear. And Sam and... 
the steering team came to me and said, what do we do with Charlie? I said, I don't know. Would you please just leave him alone because I can't come up with a good way. If I can't, if you can't think of it and I can't think of it, then let's just leave it alone until we get smarter. Let's not break this man. We don't have the right. If we can't bring him along, and please, let's not bring in any good gun, gun, any big guns. We're capable of doing this ourselves. We have time. We have time. Let's be smart about this. Hands off. So the team meets together and says, oh, well, wait a minute. We're going to get ready for Mr. VP who's coming. Let's do it in Charlie's area. I wasn't around when this happened. It was my week or two weeks off, but I heard about it. So they went to Charlie. And oh, the, the head of the steering team was also named Harvey, so don't get confused with the other Harvey. Harvey and Hugo and Cindy and Paul. They go to Charlie and they say, hey, Charlie. This was now on a Friday because they were laying their plans on Thursday. Hey, Charlie, we got this great idea. The plant's been saved. You heard the announcement. You heard the announcement. We'd like to come in and, and do a great before and after video. You don't have to do a thing. We'd like to use your area. What do you say, huh? What do you say, huh? What do you say? And Charlie, without even looking up, said no. He said no. He just continued his work. The rest of the team went into a huddle. And Yogo said, hey, Charlie, I've known you for 17 years. Come on, be a sport. We want to do our place proud. Let us come in. And Charlie said no. That was the second and last time he said no. He didn't even bother with no. Well, we're not going to force you. We'll see you on Monday. So the team came up with a plan B that they were going to put into place on Monday to be ready on Tuesday. And everybody checked out. Everybody checked out, including Iago, Cindy, and Paul. But they stayed. They did not go home. They waited until Charlie left. And then they pulled out their video camera and they took footage of his area in all its dreadful before condition. And then they made magic happen. Four hours later, visual order ruled. Charlie's rickety rackety table was gone. It was in the dumpster along with all the other junk. They had found a bright, shiny metal table that fit perfectly, had three drawers. Mm, Put it into place. Pleased as punch, the team members went home, excited about the surprise that was waiting for Charlie when he came in on Monday. Mm, That's the way they went home. And then we hear from Jim, who was a supervisor, and the supervisor told me this story. Because I came in the following week, and the team said, we need some help. And Jim told me this part of the story. I've only got another two minutes. I don't think I'm going to make it. He said, I came in on Monday morning. I punched in. I punched in. And I heard this strange sound. It was 625. And I heard, I said, oh, my goodness. Some animal is caught in a machine. It was this wailing, screaming sound. And I decided to follow it, of course. I'm a supervisor. 
Some poor animal is trapped in the machine, and I'm following the sound, and I'm following the sound, and I am suddenly standing in front of my supervisor's office, and through the glass door, I see my supervisor, and in front of him, with his mouth wide open and his face beet red, straining in his body is Charlie, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, and he is saying, I want my table back! I want my table back. I want my table back. I want my table back. And ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to leave it there. I will find some fabulous things to share with you next week. So this is all one piece of cloth. I think I'll be able to do that and tell you what happened with Charlie and how this all worked out and the great, great lesson it taught me and everyone. Something that I didn't realize was there, although I was no part of the decision-making, I was still responsible. I had a wonderful time talking with you today. I hope these sharings are of matters that are useful to you and important to you and that you can begin to use in your own work or at least think about. But i got to run now. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off until the next time. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.